One, two, three. Welcome to the Smartest Amazon Seller Podcast. It's your host, Scott Needham. Been selling on Amazon for 11 years, and believe it or not, I keep learning a lot of new things. And my favorite thing about this podcast is to learn something new, something that like you can use in your business today. And I've been doing this podcast for four plus years now. And so I've kind of seen the wave, the ups and the downs of the industry. We've already seen a few different waves. Obviously, COVID brought some changes, but one that people just love to talk about because I think we love to beat up on the aggregators. Those are those businesses that buy other Amazon businesses. We just like to beat up on them because they came in with a lot of money and (laughs) made a big splash, bought a lot of brands, and some of them have uh, failed. So that kind of shapes the way that we think about the acquisition space. You know, you know, a lot of people are building businesses and e-commerce. You can hand it off. You can exit it. Fairly straightforward. And I have with me on today's episode, one of the first investment bank that focused on e-commerce businesses, Fortune.net, the co-founder and CEO, Mikhail. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you, Scott. I'm happy to be here. All right. So I gave a preamble to the industry is up to right now. What would you say? You know, it's 2024. We have seen, I think, Thrasios under preparations to file for bankruptcy. They're obviously not the only buyer, but it's a big part of the market to see some of these players kind of duck out. Yeah, you are right. So this market has gone through some developments. And I think that overall, what we see is a process of maturing. It all starts with the fact that Amazon is a platform that allows businesses to offer their products and and brands and to get access to huge traffic and with that to grow successful businesses. And as such, these are very interesting acquisition targets. Aggregators have emerged over this potential that was identified and it was done with strong wave accompanied by huge investments of billion of probably billion of dollars invested during a very short time. And, uh, and indeed, we can see aggregators that have failed or are failing or struggling. And alongside those, we can see others that are actually quite successful. And they themselves are emerging and define or redefine their strategy to become more solid and stronger and larger. It is Very important to mention that not only aggregators are looking at acquiring Amazon businesses. For the right businesses, acquirers are diversified and there are private equities that are investing and acquiring such businesses, strategic partners or players that are looking to expand their business through acquisition of Amazon businesses, as well as others, others, e-commerce operators, other bigger Amazon players, different kind of high net worth individuals or group of investors. And with time, as it becomes more absolutely proven that those Amazon businesses are solid and built to stay, we can see more and more investment directed into this uh, market. So that's, that's in general. What you're saying, what I understand is like the marketplace has matured. People understand what a good opportunity looks like and they understand what a bad opportunity looks like. And that probably wasn't the case a few years ago. So it's matured. And with that, people know what they're looking for. They know what something you take a dozen businesses and you could throw that, look at all their numbers and you know, a few are going to shine. And 
What actually got me interested in talking with you is this benchmark guide that you guys put together. To me, that's actually, you know, a sign of maturing is that like we have benchmarks. We know what these types of businesses, like the range that they can perform at. So we often know our own numbers, but we always want to know how do we fit in comparison to other businesses. So how do you feel about someone comes to you with a business for you to see the size of the opportunity? What are the things that you look at and how do you think about benchmarking? Yeah. So first I'll start, you know, I was smiling because you said everyone knows their numbers. You may be surprised that not everyone knows their numbers. Dealing with benchmark, dealing with benchmark is a great way to first knowing your numbers, first knowing what, what, what are the parameters according to which you should measure yourself and make sure that you, you do that. And when you first understanding where, where you're standing, then you should compare yourself to the overall market. Benchmark is super important, first because it can help you identify how you can optimize your business, what can you improve, what is your glass ceiling, where you can you meet more or less the maximum, where you, you, you are optimized already. So where should you look at in order to get your next, next step, next growth? So that's one thing. It's super crucial to understand where you're standing in compared to the overall market in order to, to well manage your own business. And, uh, and secondly, when the time comes and you, you are, may consider selling your business, then you are so-called competing with other brands that are looking to be sold. And in this competition, you should better uh, win or be- better shine out or at least not be less successful than others. So these are, I would say, the main motivations why it is highly advisable to engage with that from the first place. Right. And then... The businesses that I've ran, sometimes it really is daunting when you see your numbers and you like, oh, I'm middle of the pack and what it would take to improve those would actually be pretty hard. But I would say it's still possible. If you focus, you can improve your business. Now, let me just uh, clarify. I think most of these are going to be focused uh, related to private label brand businesses. Is that right? And you don't see a lot of acquisitions from like resellers. No, no, not really. It's not that these business are not sellable at all. It's just that in order for a reseller to be able, reseller business, in order to be worth buying, they should hold long-standing advantages or assets that can serve this business. Either excellent operations that can be handed over to the next buyer or long-term high-quality agreements with successful brands. Otherwise, these are more opportunistic businesses and as much as they, they're great businesses and they can make you rich and happy, there is not necessarily too much to hand over and it's many times too difficult to take them over. Yeah, so I just want to get that. So when we talk about benchmark numbers that people can identify themselves. So let's see. Well, let's jump into a few. I'd love to just, uh, uh, you know, poke around. And as we see, so these are primarily like Amazon numbers and the way that um, an Amazon business would operate, the way they'd grow, the way their profitability. And so it's just interesting to see the range. Let's just start off with like a cost. That's average cost of sale. That's when you're advertising, how expensive is it uh, for you to actually win a sale? 
So, okay, so, so with ACOS, actually what we're looking at is how efficient is your advertising effort. And there is the benchmark, you know, one to four should be more or less where you should aim to get. And if you are not there, you should explore different things because it is impacted also not only by the way you are advertising, but also with your pricing, what your competition is doing, what's your conversion rate. Seasonality, is this the right time to push uh, hard on, on advertising in, in a certain manner? Um, how is your organic, uh, your organic uh, sales are, are, are uh, performing? Um, so it's more, it's more of a tactical, a tactical uh, part of the business, but it also signals on some strategic, potentially can signals on some strategic essence of your business, such as your pricing limitation. So pricing may be, may be a matter of, of optimization, but sometimes it's a market limit. It depends on the product category. Yeah. And the benchmarks that I see are that like, you know, uh, 25% or less on your ACoS is, is very low. It would put you, you know, really good and attractive. Middle of the road is around 30 to 45%. And then high, above that, high is like uh, 60%. That means you have to spend $60 to get $100 in revenue. So those are kind of the, the ranges with, with ACoS. Uh, do you see ever where like sometimes like that's a deal killer where like someone wants to um, exit their business, but their ACoS is very high? How does that impact uh, that conversation? It, it is important, and, but not, uh, not as a standalone figure that uh, tells the whole story. That's, that's a parameter. And then when you see it, it flags either an opportunity or a challenge which should be further explored. Uh, so it's really important to see if, that's, if this is just a matter of under-optimization, which may be an opportunity for buyers. If the buyer is, is experienced and knows to run uh, advertising well, Maybe it's a, it's a great sign to, to see a high uh, ACOS in place because the, that's a room for improvement post-acquisition. If it uh, relies uh, on more problematic or, or challenging matters, then, then it may be an issue. It doesn't stand alone. It should be measured together with the TACOS, uh, which is another important uh, parameter, of course. And here, TACOS overall can point out on your growth potential and on your overall profitability, uh, the existing one and the potential profitability. So it should be measured uh, uh, together. Yeah. Well, then another one that jumps out, what I like about this benchmark report that you guys have, which is available on the website, is that there's a lot of different numbers. And like I'm gonna, we're going to hit a few others that like, uh, I think should uh, jump out at you. So repeat customer rate, a lot of Amazon sellers don't even think about this at all. They don't really consider efforts or they don't even know what the repeat customer rate is. I'll just jump into the numbers. On the low side, you have like less than 2%. That is low. Average is, or fair is 5 to 10%. And then if you're above 15%, you're considered very high. Now, how is repeat customer rate driving the conversation? A lot of Amazon private label brands, maybe they're like just in a category that doesn't lend itself to, to repeat purchases. You know, if it's a kitchen product, you only need one, you know, you don't need two blenders. You just need one blender. So 
Yeah. First of all, you're right. It is also driven by the category itself. Or of, of course, if you have uh, consumables and, and let's say beauty products, uh, these are more, I mean, naturally uh, tended towards uh, repeated customers, but you can see repeated customers also elsewhere. And um, the, this is a very important uh, parameter. This is something that uh, if possible, if, if this is uh, a feasible achievement, it should be pursued um, because, because it gives different advantages. First of all, you know, these are continued sales, which usually come with low investment in, in client acquisition. It means that you, you acquire the client once, but then the lifetime value of this client is larger than just the initial or one-time one -time transaction with the same client. Um, it gives you a predictability of your business because you have repeated client rates, so you can project on what will be your, your business going forward, uh, which gives a lot of confidence in your ability to sustain and grow. And also it signals sometimes that you are acquiring more, uh, character, more characteristics of kind of the real brand, uh, brand which is look sought after by, by, by customers and not just uh, a keyword play, which is also great, but having a more robust brand in place uh, attracts more value and it means that you can grow your business even further. Different ways to look at how to improve your repeated clients' uh, customers' rate is uh, part of it lies with the product quality, of course, and also by seeking ways to provide after-sale value. Many times, sellers are very much focused on how they can create a perception of the value once the decision to make the acquisition is being made. But then they, they kind of relatively neglect the after the post sale experience so packaging and after after acquisition uh, information client support community and uh, new product launches and and discounts these are things that create value literally the last podcast the most recent podcast that i had this guy offered a a lifetime warranty on his product and he made it very easy to get it. And that was, I think it changed his email capture rate up to 30% of uh, transactions. They become customers. And so pretty cool. I think it's really important, by the way, just uh, to mention that whenever you, you consider doing something like that, always consider the legal implications. You can, you can provide a lifetime, lifetime uh, guarantee but limit the guarantee to some aspects related to your products and not cover everything. So these are things that maybe you, you, someone want to consider. As we talked about it, he actually says he wishes he would have done like a 10 year, 10 year guarantee because it actually is more believable. <laughs> a lifetime people are like, this is too, you know, too, too good to be true. There's something. Whereas he felt like a 10 year, uh, been very effective and as that's interesting as well scott if you if you don't mind then in about this same topic of repeated clients maybe one more comment is, is warranted and this is the email email marketing i think uh, it seems as if uh with amazon sellers there is an an underutilization of their email uh, email uh, lists 
apparently many many Amazon sellers hold email lists so they have their clients contacts but they didn't they do nothing with it uh, it's worthwhile exploring uh, that Avenue for new product launches for for uh, repeated sales uh, for you know keeping in touch with your clientele base this can be valuable yeah I think it's it's just a different skill set. You know, a lot of Amazon sellers are, they get good at one thing and email marketing is uh, just a different tool altogether. But absolutely, they should. By the way, that's the common answer that I'm getting. That's a different uh, skill set. I think that they are now, will not promote any tool here, but I think that there are today strong tools in the market that can make your life really much easier in handling this and Amazon sellers they are experts in becoming professionals in things that they just learned. I encourage Amazon sellers to try and do that as well. Yeah, of course. No, you absolutely can get to it. Well, there's another one that jumps out to me. I wonder just how you think about this from uh, the attractiveness of a business and that's market share. So Amazon is not just one market, but it is more about like 40,000 small markets where whether you're in, uh, you're selling tennis balls, lemon squeezers, every every little product can actually be a, a mark of, of its own. So, just to to explain, your uh, benchmark is you know low market share would be under two percent, and then a high market share where you are you know commanding a lot of the market is over fifteen percent. Now, is that attractive to a business to have a high market share or not? <laughs> It's a great question, and uh, actually, there is no one answer. Part of it uh, is related to the strategy that you you decide, uh, you know, you're pursuing, uh, and also you're right that measuring your market share that's uh, it's a philosophical and strategic decision. Uh, so there is the, the direct way to go. I mean, you sell a certain product, just measure yourself compared to the other uh, replaced replaceable products, uh, what is your direct competition? This is the first way to measure your market share. In some cases, this is a strategic decision to pick who are your competitors. For example, if you sell a brush, is it a men's brush or is it just a general brush or, or kids brush? And all of a sudden you're, you're competing in different kind of markets and your market share can, can change. Uh, we have now a client, they have uh, certain rings which can be used by men and women. They have a different market share for under the men category and under the women category, but altogether it's the same, same product. It's crucial to measure your market share. You may think that if you have a leadership position in a category, you may be, may or may not be a bit vulnerable because you may, you may lose your leadership position. But on the other hand, you can dictate more of the dynamic of your category. You can take, you can decide what will be the next, the next stage, uh, or you can more easily launch new products. Your market share can also reflect what's your ceiling. I mean, what is your business potential? So in that sense, if you hold, let's say, 80% of, uh, of a market, of a category, Maybe from here on, you can only grow with the market itself. So if Amazon grows 10% per year, you can grow 10% per year, at least with these products. The larger you are in the market, 
the more the big picture like matters to you where like, you know, if, like you said, if Amazon grows, you grow with it. The one that I pick on the most is uh, pickleball paddles. You know, the, the market of, of that sport in the U.S. has grown, you know, three, four or five times in just the last three or four years. And so, uh, you know, you can be a category leader and you're going to keep growing because demand is, is getting really big. So maybe it's worth mentioning that when we related to market share in the benchmark guide, we looked more, you know, uh, in a limited manner just to your own, to, to your Amazon, Amazon market share. Uh, but you are right that uh, eventually you should look at the overall market. And if you operate in, in large uh, market, uh, then your growth potential may be huge also beyond Amazon and, uh, and you are impacted by trends which are not related to Amazon only. Yeah. Well, the last one I wanted to pick on, you guys have benchmarks for um, IPI, the Inventory Performance Index. I get people that message me like, I don't know, a few times a month just like worried about their IPI. And, you know, I, I don't have the answers to everyone. I'd have to like see a lot more data to give actual suggestions, but you know, you just need a good sell through of your inventory, you know, a consistent, you know, you also need to stay in stock the right amount and that's how you get your number up. Um, we see on the low side is less than 400 and on the high side is above 750. So that is possible. And kind of 500, 600 is, it's kind of the middle. I think, you know, I think my businesses have been on the uh, fair to moderately low <laughs> side of things. How does IPI enter conversations or does it? So IPI overall, I mean, inventory management is crucial, of course, to your ongoing uh, management of your business. It is one of the most difficult things to do, by the way to project uh, all the time, to project what, what inventory you will need next and how, uh, how is the best uh, way to manage it. Of course, at times where Amazon uh, um, dictates some limitations on, on inventory holding, it, it becomes even more crucial. Um, but overall, and, and then more crucial because then if your API is not sufficient, then you may encounter issues with Amazon going forward when you need to expand your your inventory uh, levels, uh, so that it becomes a, a tactical, immediate uh, challenge that, that uh, puts a risk on your business and, and vice versa. If you're very good at it, you can get advantages uh, at such uh, challenges, challenging times. Uh, but let's say on, uh, on regular times when, when, no, when inventory, that's not the main uh, uh, pain point uh, of Amazon sellers. Uh, still, if you, if you run your business, this shows, this is one indicator that shows what is the potential. Should you, had, had you been managing your inventory better, what, uh, what results could you achieve? Did you grow only 20% because you missed some inventory, some demand that exists out there for your product? Does it mean that you lost market share to your competitors? I, I had a, uh, I consider this guy to be pretty uh, savvy, uh, who he, he's a one man agency. And when he jumps in with a new brand, you know, I asked him like, what's the number one thing that you focus on? I had no idea what he was going to say. And he really was like inventory management. It's amazing how many people stock out. They have like, it takes guts to get a lot of inventory. It takes financing to capitalize a business correctly. And so, but that, what that allows you to do 
is market a little more aggressively or also just not stock out so you don't get punished by by stock outs and you could get punished quite a bit so it's interesting to hear you say that well nicole thank you for jumping on and uh sharing kind of the the state of 2024 do you have any final uh thoughts impressions how do you feel about where the market is moving how you know maybe the the recent amazon changes or just what you hear from buyers yeah so it seems if if i can judge you know this is um i'm, I'm always saying that i'm a student in the market we're all the time learning and trying to understand what are the signs that are out there and uh, what what they indicate if to judge by the fourth quarter of 23 then the market is improving um currently we are not working on number of these it looks as if uh, the appetite to the appetite and preparedness to close deals uh, has has improved, uh, and uh, like magic, it seems that uh, at the same time that we're experiencing higher demand from buyers, we're experiencing higher um, more more sellers approaching us and uh, say, okay, now we're ready to sell. I think that if I need to define 23, I would say that it was the year in which many players were just standing on, on the fence, uh, sitting on the fence, waiting to see what happens. Sellers uh, shared the, the, the perception that they will not be able to get the, the multiples they want. Buyers uh, were looking to see if they can buy uh, very low. At the same time, we could see some, some good deals for the right brands. It seems that now everyone is more experienced, more mature, the money is there. There is dry powder that should be invested, must be invested. Uh, there are very good businesses that excel uh, and are ready to be sold. So uh, I, uh, I'm optimistic. And, and the last quarter was, was much stronger than the previous ones. Uh, so hopefully it will continue this way. Yep. That sounds great. That's, that's promising. Thanks for jumping on the podcast. And thanks for giving us your time. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate uh, for you that you invited me. Yep. So uh, that guide's available uh, fortunenet.net. And check it out. Learn how your business stacks up and uh, the little things you can make to, to, make, to improve your business. Well, with that, we'll wrap up. And that's the pod. See you guys next week. Thank you. One, two, three. <laughs>